I may die in this cell tonight or in the arena tomorrow. I am a slave. What possible difference can I make? Today I saw a slave become more powerful than the Emperor of Rome. Brothers! What we do in life echoes in eternity. It would be a mistake to think Gladiator is just another period action movie. Over 20 years later, Ridley Scott's classic is still treasured among both men and women alike, measuring up to its Oscar-winning Best Picture, Best Actor and Best Soundtrack reputation. But being featured on The Myth Pilgrim, I'm going to suggest that Gladiator's cultural significance lies in its satisfying mythical quality. Mythical in both its theme and structure, containing not only the classical hero's journey of exile and return, but also a prophetic voice of hope for those of us who find ourselves the victims of injustice. You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. While set 180 years after Christ, Gladiator doesn't really contain any explicit references to Christianity or the Christian influence within pagan Rome. Nevertheless, the story of Maximus Decimus Meridius is positively shot through with gospel themes. After our usual summary of the story today, I will break open the following themes. First will be a meditation on why Maximus models manhood extremely well whose masculine traits echoes beautifully that exhibited by Jesus of Nazareth. Secondly will be an exploration of how Gladiator portrays the mythical hero's journey, and why Maximus's journey from exile to return makes the film so satisfying. And lastly but not leastly will be a reflection upon the significance of Maximus living with death and eternity always in sight with a special homage to the countless Christians in the early church who, like Maximus, gave up their lives for their beliefs. Okay, so let's begin with a summary of the story. It is the final days of the great Roman Emperor, Marcus Aurelius. His top general is Maximus, our main character, a loving husband and father who would sooner go back to farming than lead Rome's armies. At the start of the film, having won the final frontier battle in Germania, Maximus humbly asks the sick emperor whether he can finally now return home to his family. But the emperor has other plans for him. He instead offers Maximus to be the next emperor, and in doing so, usurping the right of his own blood son, Commodus, that honour. When Marcus Aurelius tells Commodus this, the jealous and ambitious prince murders his already sick father, seizes the throne and demands allegiance from Maximus. But when Maximus refuses, Commodus cruelly has Maximus's family murdered in cold blood, and the distraught Maximus himself gets sold off into slavery by travelling merchants. Grief-stricken and almost losing the will to live, 
Maximus is carted off to Morocco, where he is sold to a gladiator trainer called Proximus. For the next little while, Maximus is told he must fight in order to live, and so he does so rather hesitantly, and certainly not out of malice. In the dusty arenas of the fringes of the Roman Empire, Maximus gains a reputation as a fighter, but also wins the loyalty of his fellow gladiator slaves, who incidentally proved to provide more warmth and family than what was happening in Rome. In Rome, the now dodgy Emperor Commodus is having issues earning the respect and trust of his subjects, especially those senators. The only person he can trust is his sister, who he marries in an incestuous relationship, an arrangement against her own will. Alone and afraid as the new emperor, he decides he would try and win the favour of the Roman citizens by holding 150 days of games, with the highlight game being the gladiator battles being held in the mighty Colosseum. Word of this reaches Proximo, who tells Maximus he was destined to be great as a gladiator, and then Proximo advises Maximus that to be a great gladiator, great enough even to win his own freedom, he need not only win his fights, but also to win the crowd too. When Maximus learns that being a gladiator in Rome would get him within range of the emperor, close enough to kill him and restore justice, he agrees to go as a gladiator. In Rome, Maximus and his team of comrade gladiators continue to astound the Roman crowds with their skill and tactics. But significantly, Maximus does win the favour of the Roman spectators, especially when he openly defies the emperor a number of times in public, which the crowd loved because they hated the emperor. This naturally made Commodus really angry. Against the emperor's wishes, this general turned gladiator becomes known as Maximus the Merciful, when Maximus goes against the emperor's wishes to kill a fellow champion gladiator. Commodus goes crazy, wanting Maximus out of his sight, but not wanting to turn the man into a martyr. The political scene in Rome becomes a nightmare, and there is a foiled coup set up by Commodus's wife-slash-sister, and in the end, many good men die, and Maximus gets arrested again. Commodus comes up with a plan that the only way to end the Maximus problem was to go into battle himself with the gladiator, slave versus emperor, to the death in the Colosseum for Commodus wasn't too shabby a fighter himself. And so this is set up. However, before the fight, Commodus secretly wounds and handicaps Maximus, hoping that this would give him an unfair advantage to win. But as it turns out, Maximus still kills Commodus in the gladiator arena, and the very weak and wounded Maximus hands over the fate of Rome to the Roman senators, before he himself dies from his wounds. As the crowd becomes stunned at the sight before them, they are moved instead to honour and carry off the body of Maximus in Roman procession, leaving the hated emperor's body in the sand to rot. Having accomplished his goal in life, Maximus' spirit is finally set free, and he reunites with his beloved son and wife, waiting for him in the paradise of Elysium. Okay, so there is the story in summary. Our first reflection now will be on Maximus as a fantastic archetype of manhood. When I was preparing for this episode, I was pleasantly surprised at how many analysis and reviews people had done on Maximus as an expose of ideal masculinity. I'm going to highlight a few of these characteristics, both of which are exemplified by Maximus and the historical Christ. 
Firstly, it was that Maximus as a man is actually dangerous, but that he had learned to master it. By dangerous here, I do not mean vicious and violent, but rather possessing the real world competence to actually fight something, whether it's physically, verbally, or intellectually. A good and noble soldier, as you'd agree, is not one who can inflict maximum damage, but one who unleashes his strength only where it's needed. Dr. Jordan Peterson, who is always having a go at so-called nice guys, reminds us that a harmless man is not actually a good man. Rather, a good man is a very dangerous man who has this potential under voluntary control. End quote. In other words, there is no virtue in being harmless, any more than a rabbit is virtuous. Rather, virtue comes from the capability to be harmful, but instead bridling it for a higher vision. Jesus of Nazareth, as God, is dangerous. He could have smitten every sinner and opposition in his way, but instead chose to bridle his passion through sacrificial love. Likewise, despite his lethal fighting skills and prestigious position, Maximus didn't actually want to be a general, nor did he want to kill in the stadia, nor did he even want to be emperor. But when duty called, he could do all these things. This is strength. If you want to see the polar opposite of this, look at the weakling man of Commodus. Under the guise of power, he instead uses his position to manipulate and cheat and destroy others, and in the end is utterly left alone. He appears to all the world like a powerful man, the most powerful in the world, but instead he is actually a scared little boy. If Gladiator proclaims anything prophetically today, loud and clear, it reminds us that it is the weak man that we should be scared of, not the strong one. As Peterson goes on to say, If you think tough men are dangerous, wait till you see what weak men are capable of. Mm. In contrast to Commodus, all of Maximus's strength was put in service of an ideal bigger than himself. Men thrive when their lives are oriented towards something other than themselves, a greater vision. And in some ways, the measure of a man lies in both what that vision is, and also how much he is able to give his life to it. Maximus did both very well. For him, his greater vision was the same of that of the late emperor, Marcus Aurelius, the dream of Rome as a democratic republic, ruled by the people and free from all tyranny. From the world inhabited by Maximus, there could be no higher ideal. However, and a big however, is that in parallel to this great vision, is the value Maximus places upon his own family. His utter selflessness was captured on both the macro level and on the micro level, on the imperial level and on the domestic level. Both the macro and the micro are held in balance to Maximus, as it does with any good father figure, any good man. Think of someone like Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird or Sir Thomas More in A Man for All Seasons, and you'll know what I mean. They combated and fought on the highest political levels, yes, but never ceased to be a loving family man too. Think now of Jesus of Nazareth, who thought and fought big for the kingdom of God, the reign of God, 
but also had a heart for the poor widow in front of him and his own dear mother at the foot of the cross. See, the ideal man is the bridge between the personal and the global, the family and the state. A man who lives only in one extreme at the expense of the other can lead to all sorts of distortions about masculinity, such as radicalization, or just grown domestic men still behaving like boys. Insert once again, Commodus. Let's not be too hard on him though, for what makes him one of the most loathed villains in cinema history is probably because he is reminding us of a part of ourselves that we've kept in the shadow. Our second reflection will be on the hero's journey in Gladiator. There's a biblical maxim that might go something like this. When we persevere through suffering, we grow in virtue. When we persevere through unjust suffering, we grow in sanctity. Earlier Myth Pilgrim episodes explored how a useful measure of one's faith comes through observing how we carry the crosses in our lives, especially the crosses we have no choice in carrying. Maximus's story is an exemplar of a man carrying the latter type, and what a cross it was to bear. Think about it. In the blink of an eye, the most favoured man in Rome, who was destined to be emperor, cruelly loses his family and his mentor in cold blood and plummets to the lowest of the low, a nameless gladiator whose very death becomes entertainment. The contrast between his former self couldn't be greater and the stakes couldn't be higher. That's what makes this movie such compelling cinema. The hero's journey of exile and return is the greatest storyline we can ever come up with, for it is Adam and Eve's story, it is Joseph's story, it is Moses' story, it is the Israelites in Babylon story, it is Jesus' passion and resurrection story, and it is our story. This is why I hinted earlier that Gladiator is truly mythical, for myths by definition are the most timeless and true stories a culture can ever tell. In each of the biblical stories I just mentioned, the main character doesn't return from exile the same person, but rather a profoundly transfigured one. Exiled humanity doesn't just return back into Eden, the same type of people as Adam and Eve, but now as transfigured sons and daughters of God. If Gladiator were merely a story of a man's fall from grace, his exile, and then his return to his former state, it would make a nice story, but it wouldn't be mythical. What makes Gladiator mythical is that the Maximus that returns from exile isn't the same Maximus as the one before he was in exile, but one who was infinitely greater, and that it was precisely through his suffering and death that his true greatness was unleashed. Think about it. In the beginning of the movie, when all was going well for General Maximus, he served Rome well, was loved by his soldiers, and helped extend Rome's borders into Germania. But by the end of the movie, the returning Maximus doesn't just serve Rome, he recreates Rome by winning the hearts of the Romans and ensuring the end of its dictator, paving the way for the Republic to be established. The dream of Marcus Aurelius couldn't be actualized when Maximus was simply a mighty general, but when he was a lowly gladiator, it was accomplished. By his death, Maximus was able to achieve infinitely more than by his life. 
It is this pattern that gives Gladiator its profound gospel resonance. This is very encouraging for all of us, especially those of us who feel we are exiled in one way or another. Do not give in to despair. Keep fighting, keep striving for that higher vision, keep living the principles you know to be true. By doing so, we give God every possible chance of breaking through and creating us anew. I don't know if the exiled Maximus knew that by sticking to his higher vision that he would be the saviour of Rome, but the lesson of Gladiator seems clear. If we set our hearts on that vision bigger than ourselves, Trust that everything else will fall into place. As Jesus himself reminds us, set first your hearts on the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all else will be given to you as well. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. The final reflection I want to offer you is in no ways the least, for it is a reflection upon the way the movie beautifully invites us to live with death ever in sight, to allow it to inspire us to true life. Consider the many famous quotes in Gladiator that reference death. There's Maximus telling his soldiers that, Brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. There's Proximus's Ultimately, we are all dead men. Sadly, we cannot choose how, but we can decide how we meet that end in order that we are remembered as men. Then there's many conversations that Juba and Maximus have about anticipation for the afterlife and how their loved ones await them there. And then there's also Marcus Aurelius' famous, Death smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. While the specific Christian notion of life after death is not discussed in the movie, the reality of eternity is so natural in the world of Gladiator that I think us moderns find it quite refreshing. Why is this? Perhaps it's because we've forgotten how much the certainty of death should shape the way we live our lives. I don't here just mean the shortness of our lives, but also the promise of eternity, the life we were destined to live. How would I live my life differently today if I, like Maximus, could die tomorrow? What new freedoms would I have gained from burdensome things and possessions and titles and peoples if I believe that life continues into eternity? This movie is a testament then to something Dr. Peter Kreeft once said, that it is those who think most about heaven that are most fruitful here on earth. Insert the lives of the saints. As we reflect on our attitude towards death, it is fitting to pay homage to the countless Christians in the early church who were themselves tortured and killed in the Roman arenas, often in the most barbaric ways. Starting with Emperor Nero in 64 AD, all the way to Decius in 250 AD, Many men, women and children were sacrificed to animals, plunged into hot oil, 
made into human torches to light up the streets or crucified on account for their faith. Depending on the locality, Christians were labelled as dangerous cultists who drank the blood and ate the flesh of their god, and their underground masses in the catacombs made them look even more sinister, with all hatred and suspicion and public dissent in Rome blamed on the Christians. In 250 AD, an edict was decreed that anyone who refused to offer sacrifice to the Roman Emperor was to be killed, and we know that during this era, Pope Sixtus II himself was beheaded along with six deacons, one of which was St. Lawrence. I'm drawing your attention to these early church martyrs to illustrate how much the early Christians lived with death ever in sight, and yet still flourished and established a church that has lasted till now. You could say that in the beginning, to be a Christian was to expect death, or at least persecution. That was the default position, not the exception. This was certainly true of Jesus and all of his disciples. Have we grown a little complacent to this dimension of the gospel? I know that I tend to see persecution for my faith as an anomaly, rather than embracing it as the means by which life becomes sweeter and death becomes hopeful. Perhaps following Maximus can remind me a little of the beauty of a life shot through with death, who, like the saints in our tradition, can truly smile back at death. As we finish this episode, I want to invite a reflection based upon the characters of Commodus and Maximus, the two dominant men. While this reflection may be more conducive for the men listening, what each character represents is applicable to anyone. You and I would both agree that life can be pretty unfair at times, cruel even, where God's plan and path appears obscured. In such times, which brother do you become? Do you succumb to victimhood and leeching and the abandonment of the bigger story like Commodus? Perhaps this is a time for honest repentance. Conversely, what might your circumstances look like if you didn't play the victim, held firm to the bigger story like Maximus? Perhaps this is a time for your faith to be purified and strengthened for the exciting task that God has planned for you in a time you do not expect. Mm. I will leave that with you, dear friends, to ponder and to pray with. Thanks once again for joining me today, and until next time, journey forth, take care, and God bless.